Uh, well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be in verses 4 through 15 this morning. We are uh, working our way through John's gospel, the fourth uh, gospel of the New Testament, kind of verse by verse, or really more section by section. It's an approach to preaching referred to as expository preaching. Uh, not to be confused, as one man said to me in Indiana, I just love that suppository preaching you're doing. Um, this is to, to exposit, just means to explain the text. And so we're explaining uh, the Gospel of John, again, section by section. And we're in the middle of what's known as this farewell discourse by Jesus. And so it really takes place in John chapters 14 through 17, where Jesus kind of bids farewell. He says goodbye to his disciples who have been with him. They've followed him. They've learned from him. Uh, Of course, they treasure him as their friend and their leader. And now he says, I'm going to be leaving you. And in the middle of this farewell uh, discourse, he does say to them, seven times he says to them, he says a lot of beautiful things. We've seen some of them already. We'll see more in the upcoming weeks. But he says to them seven times at least, I love you. He reiterates his love for them. Uh, you know, sometimes in marriage counseling a situation, someone will say to me, look, I've already told her that I love her. Do I have to tell her again? Or he knows that I love him. Do I have to spell it out to him? And the answer is yes. Even the most secure relationships, uh, they require that we, we, we say and hear that we are loved over and over again because of our sinful tendencies and, and the flesh our fallen nature, it, it causes us to disbelieve that we are worthy of being loved, especially being loved by God. So Jesus says over and over to his disciples that he loves them, that he's chosen them, and then he tells them that he's actually sending them out to be his witnesses, his representatives, so that a lost and dying world would be introduced to the living God. Well, this is how chapter 15 ended with Jesus saying to his disciples this, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have seen, you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus sends, He tells His disciples, I'm sending you out. And this, by the way, as we talked about, I share with a group of people on Sunday night, last Sunday night, this is the pattern that we have in Scriptures that God sends out His representatives. His witnesses to introduce people to Himself, the only true living God. And now, we are Christ's representatives. We are God's witnesses. But, as John Kirkpatrick, one of our elders, pointed out so beautifully last week, this world that we are going into uh, and bearing witness about God to... um, they will not receive us very well, typically. In fact, uh, the world, in many cases, will hate us. We saw that last week. That's the way it's always been. The world will hate the representatives of Christ. This clash in belief systems between the world and Christ's kingdom is so severe that the world will hate us. We see this today, don't we? I was watching the Oscars a couple of weeks ago, not sure why, but I tuned into it, and it occurred to me as I was watching it that the more we stand for and defend, or really even believe in, God's design for marriage, for sexuality, uh, for, for gender distinction, for the sanctity of human life, the more we believe those things, the more we will be mocked and despised. 
That's just the way it is. Uh, Even so, we're called to go out into the world, sheep among wolves, Jesus says, introducing people to this true God, even though we know we can expect a very rude and even at times a violent reception. So the question is, how do we prepare for this mission? Knowing what awaits us, knowing the hostility that awaits us, how do we actually prepare for this mission? Well, Jesus gives us three sort of encouraging caveats this morning in the passage we're in. So John chapter 16, we're going to cover 4 through 15. Let me begin by reading verses 4 through 11. The word of the Lord reads this way. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. If you ever wanted to say something to someone but you just couldn't find the right time, you know, you tried to maybe get alone or find that, that just perfect moment but it never seemed to arrive, Well, Jesus has been with his disciples, and there's something he's kind of wanted to say to them, but it's never really been the right time because he's been with them. But now he would be leaving them, and after he would leave them, he says he would send, we saw a couple of weeks ago, the comforter, this this paraclete, the, the, the helper. And with all that in mind, now was the time for Jesus to share with his disciples the difficulties of their mission and how he would empower them to be effective. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says in verse 5 that none of the disciples had asked Jesus where he was going. Jesus almost seems hurt by that. We don't know if the disciples didn't ask because they were afraid to bring it up. They didn't know uh, what, the, what would be the right time. We didn't know if they didn't bring it up because they just were so sad. They couldn't bear to actually face the reality of his departure. But we do know that they were deeply troubled. In fact, Jesus says in verse 6 that sorrow had filled their hearts. So they're, they're devastated that the person that has led them and taught them and been with them and provided for them, he's leaving them. And so, of course, they're, they're deeply, deeply troubled. Certainly it was because Jesus was leaving them, but here Jesus tells them that it's actually to their advantage that he go away. It would actually be better, Jesus says, that he not be with them. Now, here's the first point I want to make from this passage. It will be easier to complete our global mission without Jesus physically present. Now, I know that seems hard to believe at best, and maybe it sounds blasphemous at worst. I don't know. It's hard to hear. After all, how could that be? How could it be better that Jesus would not be with us? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus were here Now, in North Alabama, going around, performing miracles, turning water into wine, walking across one of the many lakes that just about everybody has in their backyard because of all the rain. How helpful would it be if you were sitting at your kitchen table, you looked out, and what used to be your backyard is now a lake, and Jesus is walking on the lake. That would be persuasive, wouldn't it? 
What about if Jesus were going downtown or going to Bridge Street and, and telling the clouds to blow away and then watching as they, they blew away and the sun came out? Or dropping by Huntsville Hospital and healing people of all kinds of diseases? Surely that would be better, wouldn't it? That's not what Jesus says. He tells the disciples that the best thing that could ever happen to them is actually that he go away. Because if he doesn't go away, then the helper wouldn't come. See, Jesus lived in one place at one time. He had 24 hours in a day. He was limited in energy. He got tired. He got hungry. He, got, uh, he was worn out by his travels and so on. He could only speak to the people who were immediately around him. And he only really could get around by foot or on donkey. And so he had limited access to people. It's kind of the, the mystery of the incarnation that we talk about. Jesus was, while he was fully God, he never ceased to be God. He was actually fully human. And so he suffered and was limited the way the humans are limited. But the one he would send, the Holy Spirit, is all over the world at work. He's not limited by space, by time, by diminishing energy. And he is speaking to millions of people every moment of every day. And he's not just speaking. As we'll see in a minute, he's actually convicting. The great reformer John Calvin writes, that presence of Christ by which he offers himself to us through the grace and power of his Spirit is far more useful and desirable than if he were present before our very eyes. The Holy Spirit is the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. Both in terms of his comprehensiveness, the areas to which he would go, but also in terms of his effectiveness. But it would only be if Jesus left that the Holy Spirit would come. About two years ago, a couple of very close friends, some of our best friends in Southern California, they both had the day off, and they decided they wanted to be on a game show. You know, this, this is possible in Southern California, all kinds of game shows that are filmed there, from The Price is Right to Wheel of Fortune. And so my friends decided they wanted to try to get on uh, Let's Make a Deal. So they got up at 2.30 in the morning, they drove uh, all the way into Burbank, um, they started waiting in line at 3.30 a.m. What happens is the the executive producers, they send staffers out to kind of talk to people in the lines. They interview them. They observe them. And the people that they think may be the most sort of, uh, I don't know, outgoing or, or, or gregarious or whatever, they sometimes end up on the show. It was also military day, and, and my friend Lloyd is a, was a career uh, Marine, and so um, you know, he thought maybe that, that would help. Well, sure enough, they get in. They're sitting down. As they're sitting in the audience, Lloyd heard his name called to come down front. Lloyd Wynn. It's your time to play Let's Make a Deal. Here's a picture of Lloyd coming down the aisle, high-fiving everyone, jumping up and down. The place is going crazy. Well, he walked up to meet Wayne Brady, the host, and he just couldn't believe that he was really doing this. He'd actually made it onto the show and got past everything. And um, So they went through the game, and, and to make a long story short, he won a new car. He wins this new Chevy car, a brand-new car. And uh, he was so overwhelmed that he actually started crying. He was just so moved. I don't know, he was so unexpected. His wife, Stephanie, ran onto the stage and hugged the car. So she, went on, she, just, she just bear hugged this car. She couldn't believe it. It was crazy. And, and 
they, they, you know, they still talk about that. This is like, other than, than coming to faith in Jesus and getting married and having kids, this is like the highlight of their lives. This is an incredible thing. Um, now, it's a good thing they won because what they would learn as they were leaving that everybody gets what's called a parting gift, but really it's just a bag of coupons, you know, some Taco Bell coupons, some other things. So, so the parting gifts aren't great, really. And really, it's kind of like that. You go to a birthday party, you go to a sporting event, whatever. You may get a parting a, a gift, but it's really not that great, is it, typically? Well, in the section we're in this morning, in the final evening of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus informs his disciples of three parting gifts that he will impart with them. One is a supernatural joy that will transcend all of their experiences. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. He's saying, this joy that I give you, it's actually not anchored in or rooted in your experiences. It's better than that. And the second uh, parting gift is a pardoning peace that will actually, it will supersede even their greatest guilt. And then the third parting gift, that, that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, the third parting gift, which is most important, I guess, is the gift of the Spirit. It is the gift of the Spirit that will empower the disciples and us on the mission to reach a lost world. But what would the Spirit do? What does He have in store for the world? Well, here's again why it's better that Jesus would depart. This is our our second point. Because the Holy Spirit brings conviction to a hostile, God-rejecting world. Now, the first point and the second, I normally wouldn't begin a sentence with the word because, but the first two points go together. It will be easier to complete our global mission without Jesus physically present because the Holy Spirit brings conviction to a hostile, God-rejecting world. As we read a moment ago, as we read a moment ago, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the first thing is we're told, verse 9, He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. Now, what's the biggest problem that we face as human beings? Let me say it a different way. In what way, in what what most horrific or egregious way have we transgressed God's law? Now, there are all kinds of terrible things going on in our world, from, as we talked about a few weeks ago, sex trafficking, kidnapping, murder, mass murder, um, hatred, bigotry, racism. Um, We could go on and on. These are all terrible things. But those sins are actually all symptoms of a deeper sin, and that is the rejection of God's authority and, more specifically, the disbelief in God's Son. Humanity's greatest offense is the rejection of God's one and only Son. What can be worse? What could be worse than being antagonistic toward the world's only Savior and Lord, being indifferent to God's mission of love, being hard-hearted toward God's message of good news. This is the greatest offense that humanity has committed against a holy God is the rejection of the one He sent to save us. And this rejection of God, of God's Son, of course, has led to all kinds of attempts to find meaning and purpose and hope in other areas, in success, in career, in financial prosperity in sexual pleasure, in all kinds of things. Well, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because of its disbelief in Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit will continue to press on men's hearts that living apart from God is empty, purposeless, 
and even constitutes rebellion. Those apart from Christ, they may not articulate it this way. In fact, they probably wouldn't. But they realize that something is horribly wrong. They realize that the world is not the way it should be. And in fact, they are living against the God who made them. Now, this conviction is actually a kindness of God. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit is an act of grace. It is designed, of course, to bring men and women and children to saving faith in Jesus, to turn from their rebellion and trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit makes men, women, and children aware that if they are outside of Christ, if they have rejected Jesus Christ, God's only Son, they are living an empty life in rebellion against their Creator. Now, the next thing the Holy Spirit does, according to Jesus, is verse 10. He will convict the world concerning righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. A few years ago, I preached through the Gospel of Matthew, or at least most of it, and um, and you know, much like we're doing now, it, it took even longer than John's Gospel because it has, Matthew has seven more chapters, so we were in it for a long time. And one of the things that, that just kept, I mean, just standing out to me, and, and it was really like, it just struck me, was that Jesus becomes most agitated by, most frustrated by, He directs most of His most stern language for the religious people of the day. What He's most concerned about, it seems to be, is self-righteousness. He talks, yes, He talks about sin and a variety of manifestations and so on, but what He spends most of His time addressing is self-righteousness. This, this idea that I am morally superior to someone else because of my convictions or my perceived obedience or whatever it is. Jesus goes on and on about this. To the proud and the self-reliant, Jesus' words were stern and unflinching, confronting their religious sensibilities, saying to them, it's not going to be your white-knuckled obedience. It's not going to be your daily progress that does anything for you. What God requires is complete and total perfection. However, to those who are broken, those who are exhausted, those who are overwhelmed with guilt and shame because of yet another personal failure, Jesus welcomed them. Jesus encouraged them with really good news. There is hope for all who repeatedly fail Him. In Christ, we are not condemned but loved. Now, why would the Holy Spirit need to convict the world concerning righteousness? Verse 10 if they're not really righteous? The answer is, Jesus says, because He's going to the Father. In other words, what the Holy Spirit would do is continue the work that Jesus did while He was on the earth, showing the world the emptiness of their pretentiousness and the foolishness, the abject foolishness of trying to be good enough to make it to God on our own. You see what's happening here? Jesus is confronting the non-religious and the religious. He's confronting those who are wayward, who want nothing to do with God, as well as those who think they can earn their own place before God. I like what Pastor Scotty Smith says, longtime pastor, retired biblical scholar. He says this, grace is disruptive before it is redemptive. The gospel sabotages all forms of self-salvation. Our need is so great that it took the death of the Son of God to save people like us. The good news is that Jesus went willingly and gladly to the cross for us. Now, finally, Jesus says the Holy Spirit would, in verse 11, He would convict the world 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, sometimes the Bible talks about the devil or Satan as being the ruler of this world. Now, God is really the ruler of this world. He is the sovereign one over all creation. As Martin Luther was known to say, even the devil is God's devil. In other words, the devil can't do anything apart from God's sovereign decree. But the Bible talks about the devil or Satan being the ruler of this world, the ruler of this fallen domain. And here Jesus says that that the devil is actually judged. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, raised again to new life on the third day, God supernaturally and boldly announced that Jesus has won and the devil has lost. Now, how would the world know this, though? The Holy Spirit would convict the world of the devil's judgment. And it's good that the Holy Spirit does the convicting, isn't it? It's hard enough to share our faith as it is. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand but, I mean, or, or, or even answer, of course, but, but how, how long has it been since you shared the gospel with someone? It's hard to do, isn't it? Well, imagine how much more difficult it would be if that person that we're talking to, if their salvation was dependent upon the persuasiveness of our argument. I mean, can you imagine the sort of burden this would place on us? We would measure and parse every single word. We would smile at the appropriate times. We would be stern at the appropriate times because we would think that everything is riding on us. But the reality is the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the conviction. I had the occasion, just God just sort of put it in my lap over the last two weeks to share the gospel a couple of different times. Once uh, with a Lyft driver in Fort Myers, Florida, picks me up and immediately asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was a pastor. He basically said he hated Christianity, thought the whole thing was a farce for you know, weak-minded people. And so I was able to share the gospel a little bit with him and um, you know, share with him my faith and, and what the Bible says of the resurrection and so on. And then last week, um, sharing the gospel with my own father, who's for decades been antagonistic toward things of faith. Now, both of those two men had different objections. The Lyft driver said, I just don't really believe that one religion can claim to have it all together and everybody else is going to hell. My father said, okay, can you explain this to me? If heaven is supposed to be a place of joy, where there's no sadness, there's no tears, there's no crying, just like we sang about this morning, then how can that be if you look around and you don't see your father there, your grandfather there, your grandmother there? How can it be a place of joy when the people you loved they, didn't, they weren't Christians. They didn't come to faith. So how does that actually work? And both had, I mean, both had different objections, um, different thoughts. But what was, what was fascinating to me was that both of them somehow had this keen sense that they were not right with God. And they wanted to be right with God. If there was a God, they wanted to be right. They knew something wasn't right. There was this conviction that, that things are not right with me spiritually, and then there was also this recognition that, that something needs to change if they're going to enjoy life to the fullest or have any hope for eternity. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the convicting. The Holy Spirit does the convicting. Now, not everyone, of course, turns to faith in Christ. Most people don't. But some do. Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, right? And there are many people on it. Narrow is the way that leads to the path of life, but few people find it. But the Holy Spirit is bringing about that conviction that the world is not right. 
that, that, that it's empty to kind of live life apart from God, much like Solomon concluded after having everything a person could ever have. And that it seems like the one, the ruler of this earth, he doesn't really have absolute authority. Now look at verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now this is a bit confusing. The Holy Spirit is coming to work in the world. The Holy Spirit, as we just said, is going to do his convicting work in the world. But notice where Jesus says he's sending the Holy Spirit, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And as I just read a second ago, when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in verse 13, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So clearly there are two, peop- two groups of people being talked about here, the world and the 11 disciples. The world represents all of those people who are outside of Christ, who are rejecting God's authority, who live according to their own belief system and structure and mores and so on. And, that, that of course, you represents the 11 disciples. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to do all this work in the world, but he says to his disciples, I'm sending the Spirit to you. It almost seems like the sending address is wrong. Wait a second, if you're going to do all the work in the world, why don't you send the Spirit into the world? Shouldn't the Holy Spirit first go to the unbelieving world, to the dark and godless places where there is no gospel witness, where there is no uh, everlasting hope? Shouldn't the Spirit first go to all those places where spiritual oppression is rampant and the ruler of the world is wielding his greatest havoc? Shouldn't he go first there and then go to the disciples? We might think, but here's how this will work, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit would do his work in the world through these 11 and then through all who would follow after Jesus and claim him as Lord. The Holy Spirit will enable the world to see that they are rebelling against God, that their righteousness is not enough, that they need something, a Savior who is the ultimate victor, And the Spirit will do that work in the world through the disciples of Jesus and ultimately through the church. Again, not all will respond in faith and repentance, but some will. And those who do respond in saving faith will do so by the Spirit's power and through the church's witness. One of the very difficult challenges of interpreting the Bible is naturally understanding how to apply the various promises of God, and furthermore, recognizing which, a promise, which promises are directly for us and which promises pertain to the, just the original audience. Every part of the Bible is instructional. Every part is profitable. Every part is beneficial. 
But not every statement in the Bible is directly intended for us. For example, when God promises Abram a land and many descendants, God's not promising every single person, not promising us that we'll have a house and a lot of kids. That's for Abram. There are other promises that are, that are written for Israel. Now, yes, they're beneficial, they're helpful, they're profitable, but they are specifically intended for the original audience. When Jesus says in verse 13 to the apostles that the Holy Spirit will guide them into, quote, all the truth, it must be mentioned, I think it must be pointed out, that it would be the original disciples who would benefit most directly from these words. There's something unique that was happening at that moment that applied in some ways primarily to the disciples. The Holy Spirit would speak and take what belonged to Jesus and declare it. The truth into which the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles would end up being the doctrine of the Christian faith, the deposit of the early church, the confessions of the early church. And remember, many of these 11, some of these 11 would actually go on to write letters that would would end up to be what we know as the New Testament. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, the promise is that the Holy Spirit would be the vehicle of the new revelation through those specifically commissioned to this ministry. Everything the Father has is the Son's, Jesus says. And the Son gives it to the Spirit, who in turn will declare it to the apostles. So that the promise of new revelation is for the 11 apostles, not for us. We have God's complete revelation in His written Word. We have everything we need for salvation, for life, for godliness. Jesus' multiplying strategy for reaching the world involved the Holy Spirit declaring something to 11 people 2,000 years ago. And through the recipients of this new revelation from God, the apostles, Jesus would launch a movement that would reproduce itself, a multiplying church that would continue to expand like ripples in a lake until the multitudes of the earth had heard the good news of the gospel and the fame of God would be extended and the glory of God would take center stage. Now, we most certainly are part of that movement. As believers, we have been commanded to continue the disciple-making ministry that characterized Jesus' earthly mission. Let me say it a different way. To be a Christian is to be on mission. To be a Christian is to live on mission. We are part of that multiplying movement that Jesus Christ launched. But the new, the into the truth, that, that new revelation that Jesus promised was for the 11, who would then, again, write and teach and, and communicate and relay that truth which would become the foundation of the, of the Christian faith. Now, even though this passage, though much of this passage is directly to the first apostles, or some of it is, of course there's application for us. Look at verse 14. Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me. Now, this is so important. It's very good news for us. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. Now, what does that mean specifically for us? Well, 
by His indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit constantly draws our attention to Jesus. He pours God's love into our hearts. And in an ongoing way, He applies the gospel to our lives, reminding us that what Jesus did was enough, that we are loved by God on our good days and our bad days, when we do well and when we do horribly, when we share our faith and when we neglect to share our faith. We are still loved by God. Here's our final point this morning. The Holy Spirit's continual work is to point God's people to the character and finished work of Christ so that we can point others. From the early chapters of Genesis, with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the Holy Spirit will magnify the work of the Son. Remember, John 1 tells us that Jesus was the one who was there at creation. He's the one who put the planets in place, so to speak. The Holy Spirit points to and glorifies the Son. The continual work of the Holy Spirit is to point God's people to the character and finished work of Christ so that we can point others. So the Spirit did something unique among the first apostles. He guided them into the truth, into new revelation. That was special. That was a limited offer, we might say. But what the Holy Spirit continues to do and will always do is glorify Jesus by pointing Jesus' followers back to the beauty and sufficiency of Christ's finished work. See, the gospel is the good news of the finished work of Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's the announcement of the work of Christ. And the Holy Spirit continually points God's people back to the gospel. The gospel is not win more people to Jesus if you want to be loved by God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is believe in Jesus. And all of this is credited to you. Believe in Jesus. Surrender to the work of the Spirit. And for those who have surrendered to the work of the Spirit, by trusting in Christ, their sins are once for all forgiven, never to be held against them again. They are loved by God with an everlasting love. Nothing or no one can ever snatch them from the Father's hand. And there's no doubt, we are sinful, selfish people. And I am chief among the selfish. I'll be honest with you. We have failed to meet God's standard for perfection every day. Every day we love other things more than we love God. Every day we invest our hearts into other things with greater passion than we invest in the things of God. Our hearts aren't pure. Our motives aren't true. We are unfaithful. I am unfaithful, and so are you. It's just the reality. But equally real is this. If you are in Christ this morning, your forgiveness is complete and total. You are loved by God at this very moment. Your position with God is totally secure right now and it will always be because of Christ. You are loved by God even when you disobey. You are loved by God, get this, even when you totally neglect, even when you totally spurn an opportunity to share your faith. You're still loved by God. Now, I made that point one time And a man stormed up to me after the service and said, by telling Christians that they are still loved by God even when they fail, 
by telling Christians they're still loved by God, even when they fail to share their faith, aren't you taking away the sense of urgency? And the answer is no. How much better to share the gospel out of a place of freedom and security than a place of indebtedness and fear? In fact, that's actually the only way we're ever going to share the gospel with anyone long term. It's from a place of security in God's love for us in Christ. It's actually that way with all the areas of obedience. The, the Bible has all kinds of motivators. There's the promise of reward. There is the threat of judgment, guilt, shame, and there's a variety of them. And none of those motivators are ignoble. None of those motivators are wrong. The problem is they just don't have any lasting power to motivate obedience over the long haul. The only motivation, the only sustainable motivation for obedience, and we can make it even more specific, the only sustainable obedience for sharing our faith is resting in the love that God has for us in Christ and actually being so overwhelmed by, so grateful for that love that we can't wait to tell someone else about Jesus. Now, of course, there are going to be times we don't really feel like talking about Jesus. When the Lyft driver picked me up at the Fort Myers airport at midnight, I didn't want to talk to anybody about anything. I really didn't. I was so hoping he would not say a word to me, to be honest with you. He said, what, where are you going? I said, well, I've already put it in the, you know, the app. It should be on your screen. Oh, it's there. I was hoping he wouldn't say another thing to me. There are times we may not feel like it. But for those who are in Christ, those who, are, who understand the way that we've been loved the extent to which God has gone to redeem us, it becomes actually our desire to share with others what God has done. This is the way it is. It's the motivation of love, being loved by God. Again, those other motivations are not illegitimate, but they are secondary, and they lack long-term effectiveness. For example, a woman may determine to remain with her husband simply to avoid hurting the children. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's not going to last. It will never lead to relational intimacy. It will never lead to self-giving love or longevity. As soon as the kids leave, as soon as they're out of the house, she'll probably leave. Only love will lead to intimacy and oneness and sacrifice, the very things for which God designed marriage. Love for her husband fueled by the love she has received, by God and Christ, most of all. Kids may obey their parents out of fear. And maybe in your home, you run such a tight ship that when you say the word, your kids are scared to death and they do exactly what you say. Okay? I mean, that's, that's okay, I guess, for a while. But if the reason your kids obey is because they're afraid of you, as soon as they leave the house... As soon as they're no longer under your Find My Friend app or whatever it is, as soon as they are apart from you, they'll stop obeying. Only unrelenting love will sustain obedience. And again, it's the same way with sharing our faith. Jesus says, look, I want you to know I'm sending you out and it's going to be really, really bad. The world is going to hate you. He says in, in Matthew's gospel, he said, yeah, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You know what happens to sheep among wolves? 
The sheep are not the aggressors. The sheep are the ones who really take it. He said, I'm sending you out. I want you to know people are going to really hate you, and your own family members are going to turn against you. And for some of you, your, your fathers are going to say, I disown you. For some of you, you're going to be persecuted. He said, I'm sending you out into that environment on this mission to introduce people to the living God. But I want you to know this. I'm sending you out. The Holy Spirit will accompany you, and the Holy Spirit will do the work of convicting. I know sometimes with my controlling tendencies, I want to do the convict. I want to do the work. I want to be the Holy Spirit. I want, to, I, want to, I want to present the gospel, and then I want to make that person submit. But we can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. We can pray. We should pray, and God works through the prayers of His people, but only the Spirit brings conviction. And that only happens. We only go out. We'll only share our faith. Only because we've been enabled by, inspired by, empowered by the love that God has for us. This is why the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, we saw a couple of weeks ago, constantly points to Jesus, pours out the love of God into our hearts, the love of the one who cared so much about us in our lost condition that he sent his son to die for us, and the one who loves us so much even now that he says, you know what, on your really bad days, when you disobey and you don't pray, and you don't listen, and I put in front of you this incredible opportunity to share your faith, and you don't share your faith. I still love you. You're still mine. You still belong to me in Christ, and I delight in you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us the grace, the ability to receive it this morning. Help us to recognize and understand that you have sent us on mission. It's not enough, enough for us to come on Sunday morning and to sing and worship and listen and then go out into the world and never talk about Jesus. Give us the courage, the boldness, the compassion to be your witnesses in a faithful way. But Father, continually continue to remind us by your Spirit, it won't be our efforts, it won't be our persuasion, it won't be our dogmatism. It won't be anything we can do that can actually persuade someone. But the Holy Spirit is at work. In the same way, He was at work in us, bringing us to saving faith, helping us to understand, to see, to grasp the beauty, the majesty of the gospel, the power of the gospel which has freed us from the burden of the law. It has freed us from condemnation. We have been set free. Help us to believe it as we sing it this morning in Christ's name. Amen.